Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. For the last two months, I've been making programs for the BBC World Service, a pleasure and a necessity until I find full-time financing for the podcast. What follows is one of those programs. The changing nature of Jewish identity over the last 200 years is a topic I've explored regularly as an author and a journalist. Nearly 15 years ago, I wrote a book called Emancipation, How Liberating Europe's Jews from the Ghetto Led to Revolution and Renaissance. You don't have to be Jewish to understand or be interested in the story. How does any minority, suddenly invited to join the rest of society after a long period of oppression, maintain its sense of authenticity, if only for self-protection? What follows is a continuation of my inquiry in the form of a conversation with several leading Jewish thinkers from different backgrounds. There is also music. I won't come back after the conversation ends, so I'll do the commercial now. Please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks. Cantor Gershon Sirota of the Great Synagogue of Warsaw in a recording made in 1907. The melody he is singing may sound ancient, but it didn't even exist a century earlier. Nor did the Great Synagogue of Warsaw. Nor did so much of what I and you think of as Jewish identity. Something happened in the early 19th century that changed everything. Europe's Jews were emancipated. And if I ask myself, as I often do, what does it mean to be a Jew? It is because of this epochal change in my community's history. I'm Michael Goldfarb, and this is Emancipation, Assimilation, and Jewish Identity for Heart and Soul on the BBC World Service. Cantor Sirota is singing from the book of Exodus, chapter 31, verses 16 and 17. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Would that being a Jew was so simple. Shabbat, Shabbos, take the day off, pray, eat. It is not that simple. Judaism is our religion, but being Jewish is about more than just faith. And I asked some prominent members of my community to help me to puzzle out what it means to be Jewish today— but before we begin, let me tell you a story. For nearly half the second millennium, most Jews lived in Europe, where they were forced to live apart, legally segregated. In Venice, the Jewish area of segregation was known locally as the ghetto, and because Venice was rich and powerful, that name eventually was applied to all the Jewish quarters in Europe. Then, starting with the French Revolution and the Napoleonic conquests, Jews were emancipated, let out of the ghetto. Emancipation meant losses as well as gains for European Jewry. The Jews were no longer to be a nation within the nation. Politically, culturally, and socially, the Jew was to be absorbed into the dominant national group. Eventually, it was hoped his assimilation would be complete. Salo Baron. Emancipation did indeed open the way to a new understanding of Jewishness. I'm Jewish. You're just Jewish. 
I'm Jewish. <laughs> he certainly is. Rabbi Herschel Gluck, OBE. If you saw us sitting together on the 73 bus going to the London neighborhood of Stoke Newington, as we have done, you would recognize Gluck as Jewish. Long beard, side curls, or pais, broad-brimmed hat. Me, you might not be so sure. I'm not religious. I don't cover my head and dress like an ordinary guy. Although Rabbi Gluck assures me the world would know I'm Jewish, and he's probably right, but our different appearances represent on the surface the ever-changing understanding of what it means to be Jewish. In the 18th, 19th, 20th century, there was a great debate about being Jewish, about what it means to be Jewish, about the possibility of being Jewish. So we've gone through a great laboratory, a great test of the metal which makes up the Jewish people. And we've also seen how our non-Jewish neighbors, uh, rulers, have reacted towards changes in the Jewish people. One of the first reactions at the beginning of emancipation was, why be a Jew at all? Why not convert, become a Christian? In the 1780s in Berlin, this was asked of a young philosopher, Moses Mendelssohn. Emancipation, like the French Revolution, was a project of the Age of Enlightenment. Mendelssohn was a star of the German Enlightenment, and he applied himself to the question with the same rational methods he would have to any philosophical question, and reached a simple conclusion, which I asked Rabbi Gluck to read. Moses Mendelssohn wrote, Adapt yourself to the morals and the constitution of the land to which you have been removed, but hold fast to the religion of your fathers. That seems to me a pretty remarkable statement, confronted by the reality that he was not fully accepted in Berlin society, wanted to be able to tell his fellow Jews how you can survive and be faithful to your identity, but also work and live in a world in which you're a permanent minority. But Moses Mendelssohn, uh, whatever his intentions were, was proven wrong by history. History, anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, it's a weight you carry with you. But in Mendelssohn's time, the Holocaust was in the unimaginable future. Emancipation meant progress and changes in what it meant to be Jewish. For example, we are the chosen people. What does that mean now that we live integrated among others? The children of Israel will be a light unto the nations. As previously through teaching and now by example, Israel must be exemplary for all peoples, must reach the highest rung on the ladder of moral perfection. Rabbi Mendel Hess In the early 19th century, integration did lead to changes in religious practice. Reformed services were held in German as well as Hebrew. Rabbis began wearing vestments similar to those of German pastors. The liturgy that Cantor Sirota would record in the 20th century began to be written, and conversions, at least among the few very wealthy Jews of Germany, became more frequent. Thirty years after Mendelssohn's death, a prominent traditional rabbi, the Hatam Moses Sofer, wrote in his will, 
Avoid the pernicious company of these evildoers, these innovators who have removed themselves from God and His law. Touch not the books of Moses Mendelssohn. Some say, for, of course, sadly was proven right, because Mendelssohn and his disciples, most of their children and grandchildren actually joined the church, which showed that there was an inherent danger, an inherent uh, fault within his thinking. It wasn't that the inside of the home had an inspiration and had an effect on the outside of the home, that the outside of the home became dominant, and that brought about change in the practices of the home, that instead of being Jewish, they became non-Jewish. The Mendelssohn family became a paradigm of the processes which shaped Jews as they slowly stepped away from the ghetto and integrated themselves into society. They became involved in music. Music was the way the well-to-do Jews in Berlin showed they could be the same as their neighbors. If you're going to enter the non-Jewish world and you need to adjust that adjustment is a confrontation. Leon Botstein, orchestra conductor and president of Bard College in New York. So you're moving out of the ghetto and you're, you're thinking about what cultural practices, what do these other people, these non-Jews do that I as a Jew can do? Now, I can't lose my accent. I can't lose the way I sound. I have to acquire high German and... and painting or, you know, the visual arts are not, have never been cultivated in my culture. But as you know, I sing when I read the Bible, I sing. In my prayer, I sing. And music is, is in a way, divinely sanctioned. Now I go out into the non-Jewish world. Music becomes the premier entrance point between distinguished Jews and a non-Jewish public. It becomes suddenly a, an avenue to show equality and accomplishment. Moses Mendelssohn's grandson, the composer Felix Mendelssohn, demonstrated something more than accomplishment. He was a prodigy. By his mid-twenties, he was one of the most celebrated composers in Europe. Felix Mendelssohn was baptized the moment his grandmother died. So Abraham Mendelssohn waited for Moses Mendelssohn's widow to die before baptizing his children. And Mendelssohn was eight. Now, when that happened... Abraham Mendelssohn made the decision already that he was going to assimilate in the sense that he was going to become a Christian, and mind you, a Protestant, not a Catholic, very important distinction. And Felix Mendelssohn believed that modern Protestantism was a kind of progressive fulfillment of what Judaism represented. He never denied his origins as a Jew, never denied the identification with being a Jew. He was very interested in setting the Psalms, which are part of the Old Testament, and the last great oratorio is the story of Elijah, who is a figure, a transition figure, we would say, between Christian doctrine and Jewish religion. 
On his father's death, Felix Mendelssohn wrote the St. Paul Oratorio, Paul being the most famous of the first Jews to become Christians. But while Felix Mendelssohn grew in popularity and more and more European Jews were attempting to integrate, assimilate, and even take the final step and convert, a reaction was growing. The fact is that anti-Semitism, as it develops in the 19th century, is a reaction against assimilation. The real virulence, the hate, the conspiracy theory, the protocols of the elders of Zion, all of the great flowerings of anti-Semitism are directed against the assimilated Jew, not the Jew who comes from a shtetl and could take a role in Fiddler on the Roof. Jew hatred. The term anti-Semitism came later, emerged from the most polite strata of society. Three years after Felix Mendelssohn's death, his fellow composer, Richard Wagner, wrote a polemic titled Judaism in Music. When we strove for emancipation of the Jews, we were more the champions of an abstract principle. For with all our speaking and writing in favor of the Jews' emancipation— we always felt instinctively repelled by any actual operative contact with them. The Jew, in ordinary life, strikes us primarily by his outward appearance, which, no matter to what European nationality we belong, has something disagreeably foreign to that nationality. The Jew speaks the language of the nation, in whose midst he dwells from generation to generation— but he speaks it always as an alien. Music is the speech of passion. Felix Mendelssohn has shown us that a Jew may have the amplest store of specific talents, may own the finest and most varied culture, the highest and tenderest sense of honor, yet... The Jews could never take possession of this art. I don't know. This Mendelssohn music sounds reasonably possessed to me. Anyway, a template was set. Throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, Jews integrated and assimilated deeper into society. Elements in society focused their hatred into an ideology backed up by so-called race science, anti-Semitism. Jewish identity changed. We were modern citizens, and after each outburst or pogrom, our traditionalists said, this is what comes of leaving the traditional getaways behind. Yet the process of assimilation continued, and Jewish culture became mainstream. Cantor Sorota's records sold all over the world because people loved the beauty of his voice. No one believed that a political movement inspired in large part by Wagner's writings about Jews would take over Germany and try to conquer Europe and simply eliminate all of us. Cantor Sorota was still in Warsaw when the Nazis conquered Poland. He was killed in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. You just can't remove an event like the Holocaust or Shoah 
from that meeting place of your mind and soul where your identity lives. I asked Rabbi Gluck whether the terrible event influenced his Jewish identity. The rabbi's mother arrived in Britain on the last kinder transport from Austria. Most of her family were left behind and killed. It doesn't shape my identity as a Jew, but it certainly helps inform my identity as a Jew and as a person. My mother was traumatized by the Holocaust up to the day of her death. She lived a very productive and a very good life, and she was a very caring and compassionate person. But she couldn't get over the sense of betrayal that she felt that she had suffered from her non-Jewish neighbors, from her school friends, from people who she thought were like her sisters. These very same people turned against her and against the Jewish population of her town. Even though I was born after the Holocaust, the Holocaust wasn't a foreign country. It was something that was felt daily, but it wasn't talked about. It permeated the home, but the home continued as a proud, observant Jewish home because that is who, who we are, that our identity isn't formed by others, it comes from within us. At the start of the Second World War, most of the world's Jews lived in Europe. By the time the Shoah stopped, the center of gravity for global Jewry had shifted to America. Being a Jew in America was a blessing. Dr. Diana Pinto, author of A New Jewish Identity for Europe. My universal understanding and desire to spread pluralism, equality, justice and democracy in Eastern Europe, I mean after the fall of communism or elsewhere, has its roots in my own personal life in America because my father moved to America in 1940. My mother remained was an Italian Jew. They met after the war. My father couldn't imagine living back in Italy. My mother only wanted to live in Italy. All of this within a Jewish family. We moved back to America, and at a certain point in my life, when I turned 13, my father, who was an airline executive for Air France, actually, was sent to work in Atlanta, Georgia. This is 1962. And my mother became a professor of French and Italian literature at Morehouse University, one of the major black universities in the United States, and the cradle of Martin Luther King and so many other people in the civil rights movement. So I was formed at the age of 13 by the notion of the noble struggle for civil rights. I grew up in that same America, and it was a golden age and place to be born Jewish. Anti-Semitism was still around. I mean, in elementary school, I got called a dirty Jew and a kike regularly, but there was a group in the U.S. that was even more oppressed, African Americans. I reminisced about this with conductor Leon Botstein. I was a child refugee. I was born in Europe. And growing up, you came to America, and, and in the what now will now seem like ancient history to many listeners, but you know those glorious years in the fifties and sixties when, you know, in the glow of victory, America almost seemed to be living up to its ideals. You're absolutely right. I am a privileged generation. We grew up in the most unbelievable, remarkable shift in American politics. So until the end of the Second World War, anti-Semitism was a very important factor in American life. Jews and blacks had a natural alliance. And that natural alliance was because they were the shared objects of discrimination. 
And then came a huge shift in how Jews were perceived. The civil rights struggle succeeded. A century after their own emancipation, black people in the U.S. were given the basic rights they had been denied since slavery ended. There was an intense negative reaction in key parts of the white power structure to the situation. They turned to the Jews, whom they also discriminated against, and they made a strategic decision to welcome the Jews as preferable to people of color, and they declared them white. In Botstein's view, that had a profound effect on America's quite complex Jewish community. Jews became a wholly middle-class group, and that made this community in America more smug, more conservative, more suffering the illusions of their security, and detaching them from the long tradition of liberal and progressive politics. In today's America, where everything is hyper-racialized, the question about whether Jews are a race has come out in the open. It caught actor Whoopi Goldberg, who is black, in a controversy recently when she said that the Holocaust was not about race. I feel being black, when we talk about race, it's a very different thing to me. Mm-hmm. So I said that I, I felt that the Holocaust wasn't about race. And people got very, very, very angry and still are angry. I mean, I'm getting the mail from folks and the very real anger because people feel very differently. But I thought it was a salient discussion because as a black person, I think of race as being something that I can see. So I see you and I know what race you are. I was saying, you can't call this racism. This was evil. This wasn't based on the skin. You couldn't tell who was Jewish. They had to delve deeply to figure it out. Actually, in Nazi Germany, it wasn't too difficult. And the first steps toward annihilation of the Jews were the Nuremberg race laws. In Europe, Jews were thought to come from the Middle East originally, so we were called Asiatic. In France, many Jewish families came from North Africa, and we were considered African as well. Anything not to allow us to be European, that is knowledge we carry with us. Most of the rest of the world doesn't. In the English-speaking world, post-Holocaust, Jewish identity seems to vibrate between two poles— Israel and America, home to the largest Jewish communities. But there is a third point coming back on stream, Europe. Dr. Diana Pinto has been documenting its return. So I lived with a very strange mixture. I had the confidence of American Jewry as it moved along in life toward the moment in which Norman Podhoritz wrote his book on making it in 1967, when the Jews really entered all the pillars of power in America. And at the same time, I had a much better understanding and feeling that Jewish Europe was not just a vast cemetery, as most American Jews coming from Eastern Europe felt. Pinto, Italian, Jewish, assimilated, American-educated, Paris-based, was working for the Council of Europe in the heady days after the fall of the Berlin Wall, when a family event reconnected her to her Jewishness. It was my oldest son's bar mitzvah, I never gave up. I mean, it wasn't as though I had to come back to Judaism. It was always there like a background noise. But when he started studying for his bar mitzvah, it dawned on me that I had to give more positive meaning to his being Jewish because I didn't want him to be 
a Jew because of six million people who had died and one grandfather who had survived Auschwitz. I wanted him to be a Jew not because of anti-Semitism, but for something positive. And so Pinto set her son an example and began to work with the Jewish communities rebuilding from Germany eastward into Ukraine that have been a remarkable feature of European life the last quarter century. In parallel with this revival, there has been a return of anti-Semitism with a new cause, Israel. Ironically, it is Israel that gives Jewish people a sense of security. Most everyone in the Jewish world will say, there is a state of Israel, and if there's a real problem, we can get there, contrary to what happened in the Holocaust. I was born after the war, so I have no notion of even imagining a world in which there is no Israel. For many who have drifted away from the religious side of Jewish life, unquestioning support for Israel has become a kind of new religion. The Israel that replaced the Torah for many Jews in the post-war period was an Israel whose values and references were compatible with the values of the resistance, democracy, pluralism, and call it what you will, of most of post-war Europe. It was perfectly easy to square the circle of democratic pluralism in the diaspora with the other side of the circle of democratic pluralist Israel. In the last 20 years, there now has, and there's no point not referring to it, an illiberal ethno-nationalist current in Israel, which is quite incompatible with the old traditional positions of Jews across Europe and America who tended to be liberal and democratic. These cracks did not show at first because there was such a fear of terrorism, the Arab you know, hatred of Israel and so forth, but they're there. And now they're clearly cracking up the national identities of Jews across the world. Veshamru vene Israel et hashabat. Jewish identity is not immune to changes brought by time's passage. The music with which some celebrate the Sabbath has changed in the mouths of a younger generation. The people I've been talking to for this program are, like me, of a golden generation, born in the decade after the Holocaust, into a world where there was an Israel that continued the traditions that grew out of Jewish emancipation. The world changes. Jewish identity changes with it. We are no longer isolated in the ghetto, but part of the great movements of history around us. Our children and grandchildren might have a different way of looking at things. Vishomru, keep the Sabbath. Keeping Shabbos, Jews forevermore have kept Shabbos. And this is Judaism in its essential form. But being Jewish really isn't that simple. There is a wider obligation, Rabbi Gluck reminded me. We have a duty to help the world be a kinder and be a more civilized place. I may not be religious, but that's a creed I can follow. As the rabbi said earlier, I'm Jewish. Le dorotam berit olam.